Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 23rd installment of the Phenotype Speaker Series. Today's episode is part of our Rare Disease Day Awareness Celebrations, as today, being the last day of February, is Rare Disease Day. And we're highlighting some of the incredible work being done by genetics professionals. My name is Dr. Pavel Buczkovic. I'm the COO and VP of Scientific and Medical Affairs at Phenotypes and your host for today's webinar. I'll be moderating the audience Q&A discussion after today's presentation, which is on the topic of solving the unsolvable with care for rare. And our speaker is Dr. Kim Boythot, a clinical geneticist and senior scientist at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario and professor of um, pediatrics at the University of Ottawa. Thank you everyone for joining us today. And before we jump into the presentation, uh, I'll do a little bit of uh, housekeeping. The presentation portion will be approximately uh, 40 to 45 minutes long with an audience Q&A uh, in the last uh, 10 or 15 minutes uh, remaining. You can submit your questions through the Zoom's Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, uh, and we'll take them at the end uh, of the presentation. Since around 2020, Phenotips has been sponsoring this speaker series, and we're excited to host this really special episode for Rare Disease Day. This is particularly important for us because Phenotips was originally founded to advance rare disease research and diagnosis with a mission of improving outcomes for individuals living with rare diseases. Phenotips' founding team originated at SickKids Hospital in Toronto, and the company itself arose from a collaborative research project with the collaboration between SickKids clinicians and researchers and the computer science department at the University of Toronto. Today, with our genomic health record software, we at Phenotypes are especially proud to support projects across the world to mainstream genomic healthcare initiatives and those that help advance diagnosis for the over 300 million individuals living with a rare disease. As global leaders in rare disease research and genomic medicine, CHEO has acted as a hub for national rare disease projects here in Canada. And that Phenotypes has been proud to be a part of, including Care for Rare, SolveRD, and by providing the Canadian rare disease research platform built on top of Phenotypes called Genomics for RD. So as I mentioned, today's speaker is Dr. Kim Boycott. Dr. Boycott is the professor of pediatrics at the University of Ottawa and the chair of the Department of Genetics at U of O. She is a clinical geneticist at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, as well as a senior scientist at the CHEO Research Institute. Dr. Boycott is a tier one Canada research chair in rare disease precision health. Her research program bridges the clinical genomics to basic research aspect, focusing on understanding the molecular pathogenesis of rare diseases to improve the patient care and family well-being. She leads the National Care for Rare Canada Consortium, which integrates genomic and other omic technologies to improve the collective understanding of rare diseases, with a particular focus on solving the unsolved and the most difficult rare disease cases. To leverage some of those discoveries, she also co-leads the Canadian Rare Disease Models and Mechanisms Network, or RDMM network. This network was established to catalyze connections between newly discovered rare disease genes and basic scientists who can rapidly study them in model systems and model organisms. Globally, she moves the rare disease agenda forward as part of the Global Commission to end the diagnostic odyssey for children. 
Dr. Boycott, I'm very much looking forward to your presentation and the stage is yours. Thanks, Paul. Okay, I'm gonna share my screen. Give me one sec and thank you for that kind introduction. There we go. Okay, you see that okay? Okay, thanks everyone. Um, so uh, it's a pleasure to be here on uh, Rare Disease Day uh, to talk about um, solving uh, the unsolvable. And uh, that title links to um, our current uh, research um, program that's part of the Care for Air Canada Consortium called Care for Air Solve, which is really aiming to um, enable a diagnosis for all rare genetic diseases. Um, and this image that you can see on the title slide um, is uh, a graphic that was um, um, drawn by Karina Keeley. So uh, I think now probably five years ago, uh, when we were talking about all the um, challenges that surround rare disease, and I think it's especially important to recognize that today. Um, but, uh, you know, today we're going to focus on um, diagnostic clarity, but I just want to recognize that there are uh, many other uh, challenges it, um, uh, for families experiencing and living with a rare disease um, besides diagnostic clarity, and I'll, I'll talk about, a little bit about that uh, towards the end, but as you can see from that image, you know, it really links to natural history and um, connections with the world, and um, obviously something that's very important to um, everyone, which is, which is treatment or, or appropriate management. So to start, um, uh, rare genetic diseases, um, as, uh, as was part of the introduction, affect about 300 million people worldwide. Um, but what I'm gonna focus on today is the subset of rare diseases um, that are monogenic. And that's a very important distinction um, because it's very confusing sometimes to see the different numbers that are used. When I'm talking about rare genetic diseases, I'm talking about those that affect one to 3% of the population and are caused um, by a single gene. So these are monogenic or Mendelian diseases. Um, that's not to say that rare diseases as a whole don't have lots of genetic contributions. They most certainly do. And 80% of probably all rare diseases have genetic contributions. But when I speak about rare genetic diseases today, we're talking about those that have a monogenic contribution. And when we look at that category, um, there are probably about 6,000 rare genetic diseases now documented um, caused by just over 4,000 genes, um, but there are likely thousands that um, remain unsolved, uh, though that number I think probably is, is decreasing over time. Um, and the challenge around um, diagnostic clarity really comes with this great image that um, many partners across the bottom um, uh, put together. Uh, a couple of years ago, which really uh, is is the embodiment of the a diagnostic odyssey, um, and as you can see as you follow that line along, um, that it's it's swirly, it loops, it loops back on itself, um, and this is really the patient experience um, with respect to um, diagnostic ambiguity, um, and what we're really focused on is trying to um, promote that into a straight line by ensuring that the right knowledge and technologies are available. Uh, to individuals who have a suspected rare genetic disease at the beginning of their, their diagnostic journey. And so over the past 10 years, um, uh, there's been a Canadian network called um, Care for Rare, we, which is 
we started out as Forge, but it, <laughs> that was a particular project. Um, but it is, uh, the consortium is called Care for Rare. And over the last 10 years, um, we've been working collaboratively across 21 sites in Canada to really think about um, uh, discovering rare genetic diseases and enabling efficient um, diagnoses for families. Um, and everything I'm going to say over the next, uh, say, 40 minutes or so, um, I really need to recognize that this is the work of hundreds of, of uh, clinicians, uh, genetic counselors, um, scientists, informatics, uh, individuals, etc., um, who have all come together to sort of help us um, collaboratively work on this, this set of challenges. So today I'm going to loop in three stories, um, and each of these um, stories really highlight um, the diagnostic odyssey. These are all um, patients um, that have been seen by me for more than 10 years. And so the first is Colton. I met him when he was 11 months old. Uh, Austin, I met when he was about three. Uh, and then I'm going to talk at the very end about 11 families that I've been following since 2007 with a late onset cerebellar ataxia. Um, and they all sort of um, really represent not only the diagnostic odyssey, but the fact that their diagnoses can only come out of research programs that use new technologies um, because their genomic mechanism is, is hiding from our usual um, toolbox that we have in the clinic. But I will come back to them as we go along. Um, and so what we're focused on uh, with Care for Rare is two things. Um, so in, or, in, in order to able, enable a diagnosis for all rare genetic diseases, we have to do two things. One is facilitate access. So that's a timely diagnosis. Um, second is we have to understand the mechanism of all the rare genetic diseases. Um, and those that obviously the mechanism feeds into the access and the knowledge um, once that has gone into the clinic. Um, and we need to address both of those things, and, and we certainly have been focused on those um, from a Canadian perspective, which I'll tell you a little about a bit, and even more um, centrically from an Ontario uh, perspective. So we all know that clinical genome-wide sequencing um, is a disruptive um, test. There's, there's, there's definitely no... Um, no better test that we've ever had in genetics. Um, and when I refer to clinical genome-wide sequencing, what I'm referring to is um, uh, basically the, the focus on a broad interrogation of the coding 1% genome, 1% of the genome. Um, and hundreds of thousands of, of rare disease patients have now been clinically sequenced worldwide. Um, and the diagnostic yield for this test is anywhere, is usually in the 30s percentages, 30%. Um, and what it's doing is enabling um, this sort of image here on the left, which is the diagnostic odyssey experienced by one of my patients, Abby, um, and she's actually still undiagnosed, um, to be uh, at least more efficiently streamlined for lots of um, individuals and their families to inform their care and enable their family well-being. Over the last, um, we've sort of known this has been a great test since 2013, um, and over the last um, seven, eight years in Canada, we've had variable access to this, uh, depending on where you live. Um, and so uh, we're quite interested, we were quite interested in uh, the Care for Air program um, to facilitate uh, translation of these of this new technology. Um, and this is what I learned about health services research, which is probably very primitive, but um, you can you can either have a top down approach, which is a, the great example of that is Genomics England where there's new money coming in and an investment coming in to roll a new technology uh, and let it roll down the hill. Not that that's not without its challenges, but you know what I mean. 
um, a lot of Europeans at laboratories rearrange their resources um, and shut down old tests and bring in new tests. And as long as they're budgeting their balance, their, their budget, it's okay. Um, but where we live, we are kind of bottom up, um, which really uh, sometimes feels a little bit like rolling a rock up a hill. It's a very difficult um, um, approach. It's, it's not, and it's not an uncommon um, reality for, for many, many health jurisdictions. Um, and so I found this um, a very therapeutic um, slide to draft several years ago, well, not several years, two years ago or so, um, that describes uh, the process by which um, we moved forward, partly within Canada and then more specifically within my province of Ontario, um, to, to finally come out the other end in 2021, so it took us eight years, um, to launch a program called Genome-Wide Sequencing Ontario as a pilot project over the past two years. It's now finished its two-year pilot. Um, to allow us to offer genome-wide sequencing in province for families with um, suspected rare genetic disease. And as you can look through that maze, um, you can see some of the, the things that we had to do around uh, showing the diagnostic utility, developing Canadian best practice guidelines, defining on eligibility, thinking about data and consenting and the technical specifications of the test building a program, implementing it, and then evaluating it. And you can see why um, bringing in new technologies into the healthcare system is such a challenge um, when there's no new net investment uh, in that technology. And basically, you've got to make your case um, to, to have the resources um, for the tests that you know will be um, you know, a, a great addition um, for the diagnostic journey for these families. Um, and so Genome-Wide Sequencing Ontario, which is a partnership between SickKids um, and, and CHEO, um, is finishing its two years uh, this month, March. Um, and basically what we've been able to do over the last two years is um, bring uh, both exome and genome sequencing into the province and provide um, uh, testing for eligible individuals. Um, and we're over 3,000 individuals sequenced now. Our diagnostic yield is 31%. And most of the time, we're able to return that result within eight weeks. Whereas previously, um, in the last um, few years prior to this, you know, we could be waiting five, six months for these results when we sent this test for the few eligible patients out of country. Um, and one of the key things in all this is really, um, you know, once you'll get your diagnosis for about a third of your patients, but for those who are unsolved after that test, we have to really think about um, data sharing and, 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 a, and a way to recontact families for research. Um, and what's come out from um, uh, the community is uh, something supported by Genome Canada, which is called the All for One um, Precision Health Partnership. And what that really is focusing on is how do we take uh, de-silo some of this data that's being generated now within the clinical system and under the custodianship of the healthcare system and freed it up for uh, discovery um, with the appropriate consent of families. Um, and so the way we're running things in Ontario here, you can just see this on our green box, which um, basically then is having families acknowledge um, their, their sharing of data, coded data between clinical reporting institutions um, to enable a better test. And the second is um, having a, um, a mechanism to uh, consent families for recontact for research. Um, and that's, um, in our experience, has been about 80% uptake um, with the recontact for research, and that gives families, no matter where you are, the opportunity to share their data for discovery, which I think is very important, and I'll show you why.
So the vision for the All-for-One um, health data ecosystem is really a two-pronged solution. Um, the first, which I was referring to, which is called All-for-One Clinical, um, and that is really sharing um, variants between um, clinical reporting uh, laboratories, such as SickKids and CHEO, but also others in the country, uh, to ensure quality assurance and quality improvement of the test. And this is really important given the fact that um, uh, your ability to um, interpret this test is based on the number of controls you have. Um, and so the more you have, the better. The second part is called All for One Connect, which is the opt-in registry uh, to connect patients with research. Um, and as I said, this, this will enable families to share their data no matter whether they're seen in Ottawa or Oshawa or Sudbury, for example. And so we've we've talked about, you know, now we've got some reasonable access, <laughs> we could certainly debate that, but we have reasonable access in Ontario. Um, it'll only improve with time. Um, the, the foundation is, is there. Uh, next, we need to focus on the mechanism. And that's really where our discovery and our research program um, spends a lot of its time. And um, over the past 10 years, we've enrolled uh, over 3000 families um, in this pipeline, uh, because they are undiagnosed after standard of care testing. And there are a lot of reasons they may be undiagnosed. Um, and, and this is sort of a, a nice little picture to sort of explain that. And so the first reason that we'll focus on is the fact that the gene may not yet be discovered or that disease gene association is not yet discovered. Um, and we'll go through our approach to that. The other is that the genetic etiology um, may be undetectable to the technology that was that was performed. So can't find it on the, the exome, for example. Um, and we'll, uh, all three of the stories I tell you today will be around that, that uh, set of issues. Um, and the last, which really then goes back to rare disease day, is that the etiology may be more complex or not straightforward monogenic. Um, and sharing of data will be um, even more important as we think about this set of um, uh, diagnoses here, where the, you know, there may be monogenic or environmental factors that, that also play a very important role and how are we gonna address those and discover those causes. So let's start though with the gene disease gene association may not yet be discovered. Um, and we probably many of you know that um, if you have, say, for example, clinical exome sequencing three years ago, and you have reanalysis of that existing data, say, two to three years later, you're probably going to have an increase in your diagnostic yield by about five to six percent, which means that those families are now diagnosed because within that intervening year, um, we had almost a thousand disease gene association discoveries. So the average is about 250 to 300 per year that are documented new disease gene associations per year in OMIM. Um, and so I find this, this tree a very important concept because we have the bottom where this is the 30% that can be diagnosed by that test that we now have available. But it's very important not to forget that within that data, there is discovery. And so we don't need to start all over again. We first need to look at what that data, what that existing data potentially might tell us uh, before we move on to the more expensive technologies. And then, then this really focuses around some of our national aims about ensuring we have a mechanism to um, facilitate secondary use of data for discovery. 
Um, and so, as I said, um, and especially now since this test is in the healthcare system in a lot of places across Canada, as either mostly as pilots, but uh, um, but will be there as part of um, clinical testing is now, what we're doing is we're siloing data all over again, right? So in the research world, we've been addressing this for a decade. Um, but now as this test moves into the um, clinical world, each data custodian is siloing off its data. And so we need to find a way um, that we can leverage that data for um, you're trying to find diagnoses for these families. Um, and so this is where um, our Genomics for ID platform comes in. This is a research platform, not a clinical platform. Um, but the thinking is that some of this data that's generated now in a clinical setting um, can be freed up um, with the consent of families and brought into a national platform where it's all put in one place um, to allow um, both data sharing as well as matchmaking, which I'll tell you about in a second. Um, and this is the, the platform that this is built upon is, is phenotype. So it includes phenotypic information from those families as human phenotype ontology codes. Um, and the um, we store all of our data sets uh, within Genomics 4ID um, in uh, standardized formats for genomic type data, um, but also um, we, we have um, RNA-seq data, epigenetics, um, metabolomics, all, all uh, other types of data now, which is not as easily curated, but, but is present. Um, and Genomics for ID allows us, uh, because the families are consented and this data is coded, allows us to share data with um, partners in three different ways. Um, open is generally aggregate data or candidate gene type data. Uh, control is data where um, it's been approved by a data access committee that some piece of data can, a piece set of data can go off and, and have be studied in a very uh, controlled controlled way, um, and then restricted data where you had you have trusted individuals coming into your um, data set to to discover, and I'll show you an example of that. Um, but the most easy way to, to share data is called matchmaking. Um, and so when you think about matchmaking, this is what we sort of envisioned about seven, eight, six, seven years ago. Um, uh, and you can sort of see down the side, we have two-sided, one-sided, or zero-sided. So two-sided matchmaking are these two little guys with their blue puzzle pieces, um, where they both um, have a hypothesis, so two-sided. Um, and they're bringing this into what we call the matchmaker exchange, which I'm going to show you in a second. One-sided matchmaking is where only a single person has hypothesis, but can come into a data set like Genomics 4ID and make a specific query and say, does anybody in this data set have set of parameters X, Y, Z, and show me. And then zero-sided matchmaking is really where you put together huge data sets and allow um, you know, software and AI to do things in terms of trying to find patients within that set who potentially have evidence that you have a new disease gene association. So as I said, um, if all of our candidate genes go out from Genomics 4RD into Phenome Central, um, which is a matchmaking node of the matchmaker exchange, and this is um, uh, also at um, in Toronto at SIGKIDS, and it goes out into the matchmaker exchange, which allows us then to connect with um, 134,000 unsolved patients across the world from 104 countries. And that's February's data that I just, just got. And within that, um, in within Matchmaker Exchange, we currently have 50, just over 15,000 genes represented, which as you can imagine, if we have 20, 20 21,000 genes, most genes are, are now in there um, that are flagged as 
as ca a candidate for a particular set of phenotypes. Um, and last summer, we published um, a special issue in human mutation that sort of talks about the matchmaker exchange, which has been ongoing since its launch for seven years, and now is, is probably um, you know, at least directly attributable for of about 700 discoveries. It's probably more, but we can only, you can imagine when you get into the hundreds, it's hard to count, um, but we can recognize at least 700 um, publications that talk about uh, using this network to find additional patients to show that you have evidence for a novel disease gene association. Um, and I just wanna show you um, some of our data. Um, which was led by Matt Osmond from my group, where we had um, 194 candidate genes from Care for Rare. So these are uh, candidate genes that we identified from reanalysis of existing um, exome, predominantly exome, but some genome data. Um, and this resulted in 1,500 matches when you put that into the, into the matchmaker exchange. That's a lot of matches. This takes Matt two days a week. To, to monitor those matches. But over this two-year experience, I just want to highlight a couple of things. The first thing, of the 194 genes that went in, only 11 didn't make a match, which means you pretty much match on everything you put in. Okay, and that's not surprising since there's 15,000 genes in there. Doesn't mean they're all real. The second is that because there's very, you can sort of reduce these matches to about um, a core group of about 800-ish so connections. And so because there's some duplication or there's cohorts already forming in there, you can kind of strip that stuff away. But that's still 861 emails you have to write. Um, and so um, if there is phenotypic information and um, zygosity information, you can rule them out without having to email anybody. Um, but that only happened about 129 times. And when you send all those emails off, 40% um, don't answer you. So also frustrating. But in the end, when you put the 194 genes um, at the time of this slice of writing over two years, um, 29 genes became a validated um, match, validated novel disease gene discovery, and were published um, as part of part of our work, which is 15%, which is still is very amazing. Um, the challenge here uh, is that most uh, gene matcher. Um, which has about 65,000 of the patients in it, does not routinely make phenotype mandatory. So as a result, it's just a gene. Um, and uh, most of the time, then you can't rule it out um, without actually emailing somebody and having them email, email you back. Um, in the other big nodes, like um, Phenome Central and Decipher and Seeker, which contain less data, but they contain more data about the case. And as a result, um, you can rule out half of those matches uh, without having to get in contact with anyone. Um, and so definitely we've um, uh, said that this is a really important thing going forward. So as I said, 15% uh, discovery. Um, and encouraging the community to make sure they include the phenotypic information as well as the zygosity of the, of the variants in the gene uh, will really uh, improve this. But all that said, seven years later, it's still kicking along and it, it's um, really enabled a lot of discovery. I wanted to briefly mention one-sided matchmaking um, because we have just recently, um, about to recently, we've just launched the pilot and finished the pilot and about to launch this a bit more broadly. Um, and that's really where we have somebody like a trusted individual who we know is coming into our database, um, but, you know, has an academic position, is trying to find genes, and they come in and say, you know, do you have any variants in, in gene X, um, and show me them at whatever frequency, etc. And with that comes the phenotype, so they can rule things in and out themselves. Um, 
And we've now set this up called a one-sided matchmaking portal for, for genomics 4RD. And we're just in the um, process now of being able to link that to Genomic Answers for Kids, which is from uh, Kansas City, um, and being able to then make discoveries within our two data sets um, going back and forth this way. And then we will open up this so that we can have trusted users come in um, to the, to the one-sided matchmaking platform and put in queries and then see if there's something in our data, which is a really important strategy because we haven't necessarily flagged all the genes in that data set. And this ensures that um, all the patients could potentially benefit from um, discoverability this way. Okay, now I want to get back to the stories. Um, and this is, this is because sometimes the genetic etiology is just not detectable to that technology that you use. So potentially it's not in the coding sequence or not easily detectable by um, the, the technology that we use to interrogate the coding sequence. Um, and so this is where this next wave of uh, technologies are coming along, and I include short read there, long read, um, and, and transcriptome sequencing being the big top three, um, but there are definitely others, and deep sequencing has actually been very um, helpful for our team, though I won't go into that too much today, uh, but looking for mosaic mutations in dominant conditions is, um, it accounts for quite a bit of the unsolved. So, it's one thing when we had exome sequencing, we just kind of knew everybody just goes down the same track. It's easy peasy. But when you think about multiomics and what, what kind of um, approach do you use for, for which patient, it is becomes much more complex. And we've done a lot of thinking about this uh, in terms of um, you know, resource allocation, because unfortunately we're not independently wealthy and we can't give everybody every single omic approach. Um, and so we got together um, a couple of years ago with some experts across these technologies and tried to envision how we might um, make decisions about what would be the best um, strategy for a particular unsolved family. Um, and we published this at that time. And how we did this was really look at um, the unsolved cohort from a clinical perspective. And you'll see the numbers across the bottom, which is basically the unsolved care for rare cohort um, that we're going to focus on. So I said we have, we have over 3,000 families, but we basically chunked about 1,000 a, a of these to take them through this process. Um, and it's not quite complete, but at the end, I'll show you our, our um, data outcomes. Um, but um, you can see then, so in the first group, these are the, the um, very specific rare genetic diseases where only one or two genes causes that. So like cystic fibrosis, neurofibromatosis, um, and the patient meets clinical criteria, um, but the test is negative. So you know the me mechanism must be in there somewhere. You just can't find it with your technology. The second group is um, the genetically heterogeneous group. So like neuropathy or ataxia, um, spasticity, hearing loss. Um, where they've had a um, panel for their uh, clinical phenotype, but it's negative. So you can imagine there's lots of reasons, including novel gene discovery, that um, would account for that, as well as mechanisms within those genes that have not been detected. The third group is the unsolved recognizable disorders. There are not a lot of these left where you can sort of make a very clear clinical diagnosis, but there are, there are about 10 of them. Um, and most of these have had uh, all kinds of technologies from many groups, including ours, um, and they're a challenging group. Um, so those mechanisms will be very interesting, uh, but things like facies, for example, um, where it's a recognizable thing and everyone thinks it's mosaic, but we just can't sequence the right tissue potentially, um, would fall into that category. And the last, which is our big category, um, is the previously undescribed disorder. And these are most of the kids um, 
who have had uh, clinical exome or clinical genome, uh, clinical genome-wide sequencing. Um, so they don't have a recognizable disease, but they have a um, constellation of phenotypic features, uh, which made that the appropriate test, and they're negative from that test. So let's go to Colton. Um, and so he was born in 2010, and I first met him at 11 months of age. And you can see his picture there. He had profound hypotonia and global developmental delay. Um, very happy little guy. Um, he had these. He had four of these capillary hemangiomas, and some distinctive facial features. Um, and I've basically seen him every one to two years um, for the next decade. So very long time. He had to have uh, everything, and this is just a little capture of his um, diagnostic journey. So saw him in 2010, uh, had the usual investigations you would do for a hypotonic infant. They were negative. He came into our first project called FORGE. Um, we identified a candidate gene, um, and then he got a clinical exome. They identified the same candidate gene. That candidate gene may be responsible for hemangiomas, but it's not responsible for the rest. Um, he was enrolled and re that data was reanalyzed. We got nothing else. Moved on to genome sequencing. Um, and I'll show you what we, we identified. Um, but we basically, um, without genome sequencing, we would not have found the genetic mechanism for his condition, which is due to uh, homozygous um, small deletion in the gene TBCK. And so this is just a screen capture of that. And you can see uh, Colton here is in yellow. His dad's in blue and his mom's in pink. Um, and what this is really showing, as you can see here in this big set of white, this is um, Colton's um, genomic area here. He's got a homozygous deletion. Both of his parents are carriers for that same um, deletion. It spans about three exons. So that would not have been detectable um, by microarray uh, or exome sequencing. Might be detectable by exome sequencing now, but it's still a small enough deletion that might be tough to call. Um, and so he has a TBCK uh, uh, um, a TBCK-related condition, which classically um, uh, explains his presentation. Um, and it's actually a, um, a common enough, but fairly a bit nonspecific, right? But common enough that we've seen it several times in Care for Air over the years. And this is a, a, one of our Care for Air groups from London who um, published a paper. This gene's been around since um, 2016. Um, and we have several um, families now within the, uh, our, um, that got this diagnosis as part of our own salt pipeline. Um, and this is uh, Colton and his, and his parents, um, who you can just read that there. But, you know, basically having some clarity after 10 years um, and now connected to um, other families who have uh, the same condition through all the great things that that exist out there to connect families, including Facebook, etc. Um, so they're not as um, not as alone. Now I just want to move to. Um, uh, Austin's story. So he's 16, almost 17 now, and I first met him when he was a couple years of age. Um, and he had, um, he was, he was uh, living not, not within, within Ottawa, so it was in a rural area, and the family was having a very difficult time with his, his illnesses as a youngster. So he had global developmental delay, had low tone, recurrent infections, and some behavioral challenges due to frustration with his communication. And on his MRI, you can see right here, this is his MRI, he has this little um, image here, looks like a molar tooth, sort of just got a tooth placed on top here. So molar tooth, which um, is a pathognomonic finding of Joubert syndrome. So in 2007, we did the clinical testing for Joubert syndrome, but there were no candidate uh, variants identified. In 2013, his younger brother was um, born and passed away from the same condition. 
Um, and in 2015, we brought the family into the Care for Rare Research Pipeline um, to look at, to, to reanalyze uh, his data. Um, and um, we found one variant in the gene CEP120, which is known to cause um, Joubert syndrome, but only one, and it's recessive, so you need to have two. And so he went on to have um, RNA-seq and genomes to identify that second variant. And I won't go into this in too much detail, but um, uh, Austin is here. Um, and you can see that this is showing us that he has a very complicated splice um, difference compared to controls there. And then when you go and look at pulling this out and sequencing it, it is quite a complicated um, splice change, which retains part of an intron. Um, and you can see in the fibroblast cell line from um, Austin and the lymphoblast cell line from Austin, he's the effect A and the control is C. You can see that the full length um, protein for SEP120 is, is decreased um, across the board. And so this finally, after um, 10 years, identified um, the type of syndrome he has. And here he is here, Austin. Um, he's done some great um, PR work for rare disease. Um, uh, and uh, he, he, he did it on the agreement that I would um, sign off on his high school uh, volunteer credits. <laughs> um, and so he's been a great, uh, a great um, supporter of rare disease. Um, and he's, uh, these are his brothers and sisters. Um, and then the last example I want to um, show you um, is um, these uh, families, and there's 11 now in total, but here they are. And I grabbed this image from um, a grant that I wrote back in 2008. So I've been looking for the cause of this um, spinal cerebellar ataxia, which is very prevalent in the French Canadian population living in Ontario um, uh, for like 15, 13, 14 years. Um, and so this is characterized by, um, and I practice in, in mostly in neurogenetics. So this is characterized by, um, family members who have, um, adult onset balance issues and poor coordination. They have some eye movement anomalies with slow movements of their eyes and often have double vision. Um, it's slowly progressive over time, clearly autosomal dominant. Um, their MRI shows um, atrophy of the cerebellum, and all uh, families are Franco-Ontarian. Um, and so we had we have worked on these these families for uh, over ten years. Exome sequencing, short read genomes, and RNA sequence been unrevealing um, for all of them. And I always suspected they had the same thing, but you know we didn't really have specific proof of that. Turns out they do. Um, and so this is long read sequencing here. And what you can see here, my, here we go. So this is um, one of the individuals here. You see individual three, sorry, 22 here, no, 096. And what you're seeing is the normal um, uh, repeat, but there's an expansion across um, uh, within an intron of FGF14 that is expanded in all the affected family members. You can sort of see this expansion piece. Um, and this actually has turned out now to be, a, so it's an intronic GAA repeat expansion, um, which has explained all the families I've ever seen in the last 15 years, um, as well as lots of other French Canadian families from Quebec. And we did this in collaboration with Bernard Bray um, in Montreal. And if we went, we went back and we pulled all of our families from here, and this is just um, a gel sort of looking at the repeats. So above 250 repeats, um, we are seeing affected individuals like that. It's a really easy assay. Um, and of the undiagnosed ataxia families we have in the care for a cohort, 
almost uh, over 50% of them have their ataxia because of this repeat expansion, um, which required um, long read genomes to be able to see it. And so it's, it's quite possible that um, many of these other families who have not had long read um, sequencing uh, yet um, also have repeat expansions that have yet to be discovered. And that'll be an exciting thing that we start to do in the next uh, year or so. So the outcomes here um, are, uh, we've taken of the 3,000 families we have, we took a subset um, of 1,326, it's an odd number, but that's that's how it goes, um, and put them all the way through, or, or putting them all the way through uh, an unsolved pipeline. And the first thing, as I mentioned to you, the first thing you have to do is go back to their original uh, exome data and reanalyze it. And so when we do that, we get a 32% diagnostic yield. So that's huge. You cannot throw out that data without re-looking at it before you do all the fencelomics. And if you look, you break down that 32%, what we're seeing is that 9% get a diagnosis in a known gene because since their last analysis, that gene has been discovered and it explains um, their clinical um, presentation. 8% of them are gene discoveries that we discovered for the first time and published. 2% of them actually got a diagnosis back in the clinic using a different approach. Um, and 13% of them have a very compelling candidate gene that we currently have out in the matchmaker exchange um, looking for um, other families in the world that may have the same thing. So of this, what we've done so far, post this reanalysis, we have 841 families that are still unsolved from that primary reanalysis. And 350 of these have been selected to move forward. Now, the reason it's 350 is that each of these families needs to be completely engaged in this unsolved pipeline because of the types of samples that are required for multiomics. Um, and so they have to come in. Sometimes they need to give uh, blood for RNA or they need a fibroblast uh, or skin, skin biopsy for a fibroblast cell line, et cetera. Um, so we picked 350 um, families who had a very compelling phenotype, who really have strong indication based on family history or presentation that it should be um, monogenic, and we got additional samples from them. And so they have now gone into the types of um, technologies that I showed you for Austin and Colton and for the ataxia families. Um, and our diagnostic yield so far of the 154 that have come out is 37%. Um, and as I said, deep sequencing is a big win here. And so we are finding lots of um, mosaic mutations and things like families who have been unsolved who have NF1 or tuberous sclerosis, for example. Short read genome sequencing, like I showed you for Colton, um, where they've got a small deletion um, that was uh, detectable to previous technology are the ones that fall out easily there. RNA sequencing, like I showed you for um, Austin, and then the long read genome, like I showed you for the ataxia families, are examples of the types of um, diagnoses we are able to make. And I, and I should stress, at least at this time in the um, unsolved pipeline, those um, other omics are basically finding mechanisms in rare diseases uh, we already knew the genes for. So it's not discovering new ones as much right now as it's discovering mechanisms in the old ones. Um, and I think that's important. I don't think that'll stay like that necessarily forever, but the data analysis around these types of technologies is not minor. Um, and so it's been easier sort of to pick off ones where we know um, that the phenotype matches the, the what we understand about that particular rare genetic disease. Um, but it'll come. 
Um, but right now, these are these are not, uh, with the exception of long read, where you can find novel repeat expansions. But by and large, they're finding mechanisms in, in disease genes we already knew about. Um, and so what we want to be able to do in the end of all this is find a diagnosis for all. And so, um, as we mentioned, clinical exome sequencing, something that's whatever it's exome or genome, but it's focused on the coding region, will give you a diagnosis about 30% of the time. Um, and then if you reanalyze that data a couple of years later, you'll get another five to 10%. Um, and the novel gene discovery from that existing data is probably um, max, probably 20%. So you can see the coding genome, probably 50 to 60% will give you answers depending on your inclusion criteria of the families you're, you're studying. But then this is sort of vague over here, and it's just sort of an estimate. But you know, some of these genomic alterations and gene regulation things that we're discovering with um, short read and long read sequencing, as well as RNA seq, um, is helpful. And the mosaicism, uh, when it's targeted to the right set of genes, is is, is very helpful. This group um, of uh, in, uh, individuals with suspected rare genetic disease that might actually be responsible, might actually have complex inheritance, probably does exist. And our tools right now um, to decode that are probably are, are less than ideal for sure. Um, but it's something that I think making sure we keep this data and make it available for discovery will be very important um, going forward. Um, and then the last thing I want to just just uh, touch on um, today in, in this one slide is that there is such thing as a post-diagnostic odyssey. Um, and so diagnostic clarity is great. And the further we can move that ahead in the diagnostic care pathway um, is the goal. But after that, um, there's a second odyssey that comes. And that comes from being diagnosed with a rare disease. Um, and it's rare. And so these are the types of challenges that you can see uh, that are the focus of uh, today's events um, and recognition of rare disease uh, uh, internationally. But, you know, the lack of expertise and, and treatments and access to treatments um, and the care coordination, uh, particularly when um, individuals with rare diseases become adults, um, is, is challenging for all um, and something that we, we can't not pay attention to. Um, and so with that, I would just like to wrap up so we can have a few minutes for our um, questions. Um, but I want to just make sure that we um, recognize um, all of the uh, contributions of um, this large network that I'm representing um, today, as well as all the funders over the, the past 10 years, um, which, which has been um, a remarkable um, opportunity to help uh, lots and lots of families um, achieve their diagnostic clarity. So thank you. Thank you so much. That was a very, very fascinating presentation. It's good to uh, good to have this overview of all the achievements we've had over the last little while. You you also touched on several challenges throughout uh, throughout the presentation. Some some more locally here in Ontario, and some across Canada. Um, from your perspective, what do you think is the single biggest challenge in mainstreaming this type of patient care model across Canada in, in a clinical setting? It's mm, a good question. Um, I think it's resources probably, um, and and uh, an organizational structure that comes from the top. I think lots of um, um, places in, in Canada and the world um, uh, who, uh, have been able to sort of really focus on undiagnosed um, 
families through things like undiagnosed disease clinics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but all of that requires additional resources that in our healthcare system we just don't necessarily have or can't allocate it to it in that fashion. And all of that needs to also be linked in with the research program on the back end to do the things that are difficult and can't be done in the clinical mainstream. Um, so having something that is really connected um, is, is the thinking, but um, very challenging, obviously, to set up across different jurisdictions. Yeah, certainly. So I think my next question was going to be sort of around the, uh, the sort of the research clinical frameworks and consent frameworks here we have in Canada, sort of compared to a national research project versus what would be a national strategy for uh, for sort of minimizing the province by province or territory by territory public healthcare infrastructure. You had a picture of those grain silos. How do we get rid of those grain silos? Is it is there something uh, that can be done in the short term and the long term? Do we rely solely on research consent and research platforms for that sort of uh, data sharing, or or do you see a longer term vision? Oh, that's a good question. We, it's one we've been thinking about for several years because. Um, there's a real equity issue um, here in Canada or elsewhere. It's, it's not just a Canadian thing. Um, and so if you're seen in, in a, at a center that's got a great research program and you're, you're undiagnosed, um, you will get access, you're probably gonna get access to the research program, right? If you want it. Um, but that's not gonna be the same uh, across different places. And so um, we had lots of discussions um, uh, within the Canadian community about how to address this because um, there's a certain amount of data you can share between clinical institutions, but you can't, unfortunately, share it for discovery per se. Um, as much as we would like to, and as much as we actually personally think that should be part of care for rare disease patients, the ministries of health don't see it that way. Anything that is considered research is outside their purview. Um, and so that's where we came along um, with this thinking around um, connect. And so having a national platform um, that allows um, families to say, yes, you can have my data, and yes, you can contact me for research, um, gets away from you having to have all of these sets of resources across, you know, 25 sites in Canada and instead centralize it, um, which we hope will help address the equity issue. I mean, it's it's the thinking, and that's what we're going to pilot, um, and then we're going to have to show the utility of, of taking that approach. Ooh. And I guess taking that a step further, like we have a lot of great academic research centers here in Canada, a lot of which are doing uh, cutting edge things in rare diseases or, or other disorders. How do you see the role of genomic care extending out of these tertiary care centers and pediatric hospitals into other regions of Canada? And, and how do you think we can, we can do that? Yeah, so I think... Um... You know, that's that's a lot where we're starting to think about how do we um, get the patient to the right test in the shortest amount of time. And I think the, the current model where, um, you know, you as we showed in the diagnostic odyssey, where you loop around and eventually um, you might get to a genome-wide sequencing test, but it might take you two years, needs to be flipped on its head. Um, and I think the role of um, specialists who have expertise in genetics probably needs to come not so much, not spending our time getting the people to the test at the beginning, but being on the back end of that genomic data and helping interpret that test. Um, and so as we think about um, a model, which I would refer to as mainstreaming, which is, which is the concept that the test would be um, flagged as potentially appropriate for a patient up 
upfront and can be ordered upfront, but then um, the specialist who can help interpret that test sees on the back end would take away most of that work and allow us to focus on um, finding diagnoses for these families instead of phenotyping them and you know discussing the test, et cetera, et cetera, right? You gotta flip that, flip that triangle basically. Mm. How do you think that applies to either more rural or northern communities, sort of to Austin's story? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we're piloting a couple things with that, but one of the things we're piloting right now is something called self phenotyping. Um, and so as families seen in Ottawa are undergoing genome wide sequencing as part of our, our pilot project, um, before they get their test, the family is phenotyping themselves, and then the, the clinician is phenotyping them. And what we're doing then is comparing the family um, reported phenotype in the, with the data to say, can you actually get that diagnosis based on what the family thinks? So it's a kind of a neat way to think about um, uh, empowering families to get themselves to the test, even if um, even if they, you know, have you live in a rural place in Canada and have a family doctor, we can still support that family doctor through appropriate training. But can the family actually contribute to that process as well? Well, we'll have to wait and see. Um, in our initial pilot, the families did very well. But again, very, it's a bit biased still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I have another question for you. So as part of, you spoke a little bit of the genome-wide sequencing Ontario project. So as part of that, are we actually sequencing more patients compared to when uh, out-of-country testing process was being funneled through uh, the Ministry of Health? And have the criteria, you know, become easier to order those tests? Um, um, the criteria are exactly the same. Okay. Um, so that has not changed. That was part of the pilot because when we were previously uh, in all Canadian places, when they were previously sending things out of country, we had no idea about the outcome. So you're funding a several thousand dollar test and the payers don't actually know what the result was. Was it positive, negative, you know, what have you. Um, so the criteria in Ontario were exactly the same as they were previous when we were sending things out of country. Um, I would say there's been an increase in families that have access, but it's not like it's not ginormous. It's not tripled or anything like that. Uh, it's it's kind of constant. Um, and I think that what we would do going forward is evaluate changes to that clinical criteria and the outcomes with that um, to, to see if we can't broaden the eligibility criteria. Um, just because a, a test has a diagnostic yield of 30%, well, that's an arbitrary number. Why does it need to be 30%? Is 10% good? Um, that comes all into the cost effectiveness studies that come that payers need to see when they decide if they're gonna fund a test or not. But just because it's 30 doesn't mean it always needs to be 30. And in which case, you know, can you broaden the inclusion criteria to capture more diagnoses? So we have some questions that came in through our audience. Um, so one is, are there specific criteria to decide between RNA sequencing, long read sequencing, methylation studies uh, in the undiagnosed cohort post exome sequencing and reanalysis? Yeah, there are. Um, and um, basically, uh, it, it depends on what the post exome uh, reanalysis showed us. So, for example, if the post exome analysis identified um, one candidate uh, variant in a recessive gene that really looked like it would be a good match for the patient, but we're missing the second one, they would go to, to the RNA-seq genome combination. Um, uh, right away, versus if we had a patient with tuberous sclerosis who had negative um, testing, they would go to deep sequencing right away. So I didn't show that today, but we do have very painful to look at um, decision trees on um, 
on which which technology they they get and and when. Um, and for um, I think you also asked about um, uh, the methylation studies. Um, we um, collaborate with. Um, a couple of researchers in, in Ontario, but uh, Beckham Sidovic in L London uh, in particular, um, such that most of our undiagnosed go to um, go to EpiSign um, to see if we can get a clue. Uh, and we also use EpiSign for those where we have a variant um, in a singleton or a duo and can't tell whether or not it's actually de novo to see if the signature matches um, that particular recognizable signature disease. So it's, it's the, I think that the key part of all that is it's very custom, right? Each family is its own unique way of doing things at the moment. Now, that won't necessarily always be the same as the new technologies come along that can do RNA and the epigenome at the same time as your long read, right? Even that exists now. Um, the data analysis for that is horrendous, but it'll get better with time. And maybe there'll actually just be one assay that we can run on everybody. Yeah, that would be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it would be. <laughs> Save a lot of my time. Um, we have another question from the audience. Uh, I, I'm assuming this is in the context of either Canada or Ontario. Uh, has diagnostic testing expanded to whole genome sequencing? Um, that's a good question. Um, uh, diagnostic testing in Ontario uh, for whole genome sequencing is not funded at this time. Um, uh, and then across the country, um, there are a number of pilots that are using genome sequencing, but they're not actually reimbursed within that healthcare system yet. And so I think we are still developing the evidence um, to show that genome sequencing is superior. And a lot of what we've done at GSO did not set out to show that it was superior, not by intention, but because one of the criteria for GSO is that you had a microarray. So therefore, all of the things that you would have diagnosed on genomes potentially are gone. Um, and so you, your genome essentially becomes a coding genome. Um, and so we need to make sure that we can um, use the genome to its full potential uh, to show the cost effectiveness of that approach um, and or the genome cost needs to come down considerably. Once it's equivalent, you can just switch them out, but that's not happened yet. But maybe it will by next year. So we have a few more minutes. We might not be able to get to all the questions, but um, I'll try to uh, get a few more out there. Um, one uh, audience member is asking, what do you think the trend would look like for countries, regions, such as the Middle East and East Asia that do not currently focus on rare diseases much? How long would it take them to catch up to what is currently happening in Canada, US and Europe? And do you think with uh, those advancements, it would be faster and would social stigma play a role? Mm, that's a good question. So I think that um, a lot of what others have developed could certainly be used, which would save um, lots of time uh, and infrastructure. It would still take some resource allocation, obviously, to bring those things in and training programs to, to make sure everybody feels comfortable with how they're interpreting the data. Um, so I think that it could come faster if the resources were there. Um, how that particular region or country prioritizes um, the diagnosis of rare disease for their population is, is very country dependent. Um, and certainly there are lots of um, developing countries that we've had interactions with through some of the international um, consortia that I work with where they have other problems um, mm -hmm. that they're trying to deal with and, and rare disease is not top of mind. Um, doesn't mean that there's not lots of undiagnosed rare disease that are there. Um, and, and then there are others where social stigma may potentially play a role. And I guess, it, it, again, that's, that's something that would have to be addressed very um, purposefully. 
Yeah, and I think relying on the community of people who really are passionate about this, you know, across various countries is actually a really good way of of starting up rare disease or undiagnosed research projects in countries that haven't done this uh, yeah. ability or or have connections to people who are interested to opening that up. There are great resources like the Undiagnosed Disease Networks International uh, and others that have experience in starting up those sorts of programs in, in both developing countries and in developed countries and sort of across the board. Uh, so that would be a, a, a great resource to start off with. I think with that, we have, uh, that's all the time we have for questions. So I'd like to thank Dr. Kim Boycott for being a part of today's uh, speaker series. Um, once uh, once we finish the webinar, you'll see a feedback link in your browser um, and an email uh, for you to fill out uh, just a minute or two to offer some feedback about the webinar. The email also gives you access to all 22 previous episodes. Well, we've done so many already um, on demand. You can sign up to receive alerts about upcoming uh, speaker series as well. And uh, please stay tuned for our next episode in not too long. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure.